Well, good morning. As uh, Kelly mentioned, tomorrow night uh, we have a guest speaker. I just want to take a minute and mention this. Um, Ron Deal, who is speaking tomorrow night, is a good friend of mine. He's in town. We have some board meetings uh, together. And he is going to be speaking at our re-engage ministry. You say, what's re-engage? Re-engage is our weekly marriage ministry. It's open to anyone. You can come anytime. And Ron Deal, who has spoken here at Wheaton Bible Church before, will be speaking on the subject of marriage, remarriage, and blended families. And he is simply one of America's finest in these areas. So I want to encourage you, it starts tomorrow night at 6.30. Rhonda and I will be there. You're welcome to uh, join us. Now today, as we move into this Losing Control series, I want to talk about the subject of worry. Because we all worry. And we all know we shouldn't worry, right? Oh, that was pretty tepid. We all know we shouldn't worry, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, somebody said worry is kind of like a, a, a rocking chair. You're doing something, but you're not going anywhere. And, and we know we're not going anywhere. Uh, so students worry about being accepted, being liked. They worry about friends. Young adults worry about a job, marriage. Parents worry about their kids. Grandparents worry about the parenting of their grandkids. I hope my adult kids are listening. Uh, and sometimes uh, worries just sort of jab at us. Other times, they crush us. Talk to a guy just after the last service. Worry is crushing him. Worry is such a pervasive problem in America today that researchers have identified 10, not 3, not 5, not 7, but 10 what they call major domains of fear or worry for Americans today. Let's look at these quickly. Here you see the domains of fear, the human brain, are the center of where we worry. Now let's look at these one by one. The first is the area of crime. Everything from murder to identity theft. A couple uh, years ago, Ron and I were having dinner in the city with one of our daughters. Apparently one of the servers wrote down my credit card number. A couple of weeks later, somebody showed up with my credit card at a bank and asked to withdraw $3,000. We worry about crime. Let's continue. Then there's this whole area of personal anxieties, everything from public speaking to spiders. I know none of you are worried about spiders. And then we worry about what others think, how others perceive us. Uh, will we be accepted or not? Then the next domain, the next area of fear, worry, is the environment. What's going on with pollution, global warming, then daily life. We worry about our relationships. Here in the suburbs, we worry a lot about family, about friends. Then there's the area of technology, cyber terrorism. Then now these seem to be, get a little bigger, a little more global, this whole area of national disasters. Big issue for all of us. Then from there, we go to our personal future. Now look at these. Uh, we worry about death. We worry about our health. We worry about our employment, our employment or unemployment, our, our retirement. Then there's this man-made disasters. Who isn't worried about terrorism? And look at the last domain of fear, the government. 
We worry about government. We worry in the United States in this uh, presidential election year. We worry a lot about politics. This and more is what we worry about. And boy, do we worry in the United States. You worry, I, I worry. As a matter of fact, and I'll be honest here, um, I never thought of myself as a worrier. But a couple of years ago, I realized that the older I get, the more I worry. Uh, I worry about our kids and grandkids. I got up today, um, saw on, on the news that there was a, a border skirmish in a, in a country in a difficult part of the world. 30 soldiers were killed. I've got kids and grandkids that live in that country. I worry. I worry about money, retirement. I worry about people. I worry about politics. I, I worry a lot about this church. As a matter of fact, I found that this week I worried about preaching on worry. <laughs> uh, I, I worry uh, about our giving. And then we have a month like last month, the month of March, when our giving unexpectedly dips. Man, and I worry, what's going on? And all of that in spite of the fact that over and over God has proven himself incredibly faithful to me. No wonder the Bible has a massive amount to say about the subject of worry. Do not fear is the single most repeated command in the Bible. Because God knows worry is pervasive. And worry is so very destructive. So a couple of definitions and we'll get started. What is fear? What is worry? Fear is an internal warning that danger is afoot, that danger is near, that danger is nearby. And, and so a lot of times, um, fear can and be good because it'll keep us safe. It'll cause us to back off the edge. But often, way too often, fear is a false prophet. It's a prophet of doom. It, 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 it's a, a, a visionary minus faith. Because fear wraps its mind around the wrong thing. Worry is habitual fear. Worry is fear that has unpacked its bags and moved in, signed a lease. And it almost never moves out on its own. It has to be evicted. It has to be tossed out. And that's what we want to do today. I want to help you because I love you. Toss out worry. So grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. And we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew today. Matthew chapter 6. It's page 970 in the Bibles in front of you. This is arguably the most central passage on worry in the Bible. These words of Jesus are incredible. Jesus wants to help you with your worry. Jesus can help you with your anxiety. So let's read beginning in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Be a bird watcher. 
They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour, an hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Is that how, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is an amazing passage. My responsibility is to show you how amazing it is. Three times Jesus commands, do not worry. In the first verse, 25. In the middle, verse 31. And then the last verse, verse 34. Do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. But Jesus is saying something more than just buck up and stop it. Because Jesus is never simplistic. And Jesus knows that none of us wake up in the morning and say, oh man, today's going to be a great day. I'm going to spend all day worrying. I'm going to cover five domains. No. uh, uh, Jesus knows that worry is mostly involuntary. That it's this unwelcome emotion, this dark emotion that comes from deep within, often in ways we're not even conscious of. So yes, Jesus commands us, calls us not to worry. But because Jesus wants to help us, here Jesus is going below the surface in these two paragraphs. And performing surgery of sorts. And and, and telling us, why we worry, and how we can evict worry. And that's what I want to do today. Why we worry and how we can evict worry. So let's start with the why. Why in the world is worry so pervasive? Well, the short answer is we worry because we want to control the uncontrollable. Worry wants to be boss. (laughs) Worry and anxiety are a power and a control issue. That's why we've entitled this series, uh, Losing Control. We lose control emotionally because we haven't surrendered control. Uh, Someone, I love the way somebody put it uh, when they said, fears are like breadcrumbs. Follow them and they will take you to the house of the witch. The house of the witch is control. It's power. Now this is Jesus' point in the last verse, verse 34. Look at it. When Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Why do we worry about tomorrow? Because we want to manage. We want to control outcomes. We want to control the future. 
Furthermore, a little earlier in the passage, this is exactly why our Lord says in verse 37, you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying. His point is we want that power. We want that control. We want to be able to direct our future. Anxiety is about what we can't control. Uh, think about it. Danger shows up in our life. Something we value is threatened. So you get a call from the doctor and it's serious. Or pornography. Infidelity is uncovered. Or you lose your job. Or you're rejected by someone. Uh, somebody moves away. And that trauma, that, that danger shows you in that moment you're not in control. Danger shatters the illusion of power and control. Now you and I are never in control to, to begin with. That's why Jesus says you can't control tomorrow. You can't even add an hour to your life. But when our life is easy, when our life is comfortable, man, we just begin to feel we really are in control. So underneath this is this control issue. It's the curse of the fall. The battle in the Garden of Eden was ultimately about power, control, and authority. We do not want to submit to God's authority. We do not want to rest in God's control. We want to be in charge. So Jesus is saying in this passage, the fin is worry. The shark underneath the water is control power now let me illustrate this with a uh, in some ways parallel old testament passage way back in the book of exodus exodus chapter 16 uh, just days after israel has been supernaturally delivered from the bondage in egypt and walked through on dry ground the red sea as the entire egyptian army was destroyed all of a sudden, Israel's in the desert, and there's a danger. A reality has shown up. And that is, what are we going to eat? And so let's look at how this plays out. Look at Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now never mind the incredible miracles, right? And so they're facing a danger. The danger is a lack of food. Now God all along had intended to provide for Israel with manna. But Israel didn't know it. So let's continue. Look at the next verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. That's what we call manna. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. Life is constantly full of tests. I, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. They fail the test. Let's continue. Let's jump down some verses to verse 19. Then Moses said to them, that is to the Israelites, no one is to keep any of the manna until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They paid no attention to God. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them, not to mention God. 
Now, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that God doesn't want to uh, uh, allow Israel to be able to store food for a year, a month, or even a week. Because he knows that Israel will quickly forget him. So in order to teach Israel the importance of trusting him, God's plan is to provide bread daily. Once a day. But Israel disobeys. And the reason Israel disobeys, the reason Israel grumbles, is because Israel wants to be in control. Israel wants it her way. Israel wants to be in charge. Israel doesn't want to submit to God's control, God's authority. And the point is, we are Israel. And so we worry and we grumble and we complain and we take matters into our own hands and we disobey. Worry is the fruit, control is the root. And our Lord wants us to see that here. So in Matthew 6, Jesus is actually correcting the problem of Exodus 16. Now let's go on. Let's line this out. And let's ask the question, well, how do we evict worry? What is Jesus saying here? How do we live differently than the Israelites lived in the desert? And Jesus tells us three things. Number one. Reorient to God's providence. Continually, daily, consistently reorient to God's providence. It's north. Reorient to the north. What is God's providence? Well, God's providence is God's sovereign reign. It's God sustaining, God ruling over everything. And this is exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, hey, look at the birds. Look at them. Look at the birds of the air. Now the word look, the verb here, means to ponder, to consider, to think. Anxiety is the absence of thinking. If you're worrying, you're not thinking. Others point out when you um, let your heart, your, your feelings uh, run off at the, the mouth, that's when you get anxious. So Jesus says, stop, look at the birds. Uh, look at the facts. Talk your heart back off the ledge. Look at how God provides for the birds. You know, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store. Look at how he, uh, then he says, look at how God adorns the flowers in the field. Not even Solomon was adorned uh, such. Jesus is saying, think. Think. Don't listen to your worries. It's never as bad as your worries tell you. 
Because if God provides for the birds, if God creates the grasses in, in such a way, um, he will provide for you. You were made in his image. You are much more valuable. So hear me. Let me continue this, but I want you to hear me. Faith is not turning off your mind. Worry is. That's what Jesus is saying. Faith is never, ever turning off your mind. That's what anxiety, that's what worry is. Faith is a position of confidence toward life, toward the future, because you believe what God has said in his word, and, and you trust it. And so you believe God is in control. Jesus said it. So uh, this um, uh, biblical uh, theme of God's providence is that God controls and sustains everything, the, uh, the forces of the universe, uh, human history, and all human decisions, e even the most sinful ones. And here Jesus is illustrating just an aspect of this, this rich biblical concept, this rich biblical doctrine. And what Jesus is saying is, use the providence of God arguments on your heart. It's key to your worry. Jesus is saying when you're, when you're tempted to, to capitulate, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. Uh, tell yourself about the birds. Man, they don't sow, they don't reap the flowers. Uh, quote to yourself Romans 8.28, and we know that God works all things, all things together uh, for good. Jesus is going to God's sovereignty, God's providence here. Now let me just take this a step further. Does this mean we're puppets? Uh, no. This biblical concept of God's providence is very different than the secular notion of fate. Uh, lots of ways to talk about this, but let me illustrate it with a verse from the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 2. Peter is speaking in Jerusalem, and he's preaching about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And look what he says. This man, that would be Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now notice Peter says two things relative to Christ's crucifixion. He tells us, first of all, uh, it was God who handed Jesus over according to his deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The word providence actually means foresight. That's a statement about the providence, the sovereignty of God. But Peter doesn't stop there, and he goes on and says, you, and he's preaching in Jerusalem, you and the wicked people around you, you put him to death. In other words, you are responsible. The guilt is on you. The Old Testament character, Joseph, and Joseph is a type of Christ, says essentially the same thing to the very brothers that betrayed him when he says, you meant it for evil. In other words, what you did was evil. You were evil in that moment, but God meant it for good. Now, now this is not fatalism. 
God is 100% sovereign and we are 100% responsible. The Bible is very sophisticated about this subject of God's providence. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 is when you believe in the providence of God, it will evict your worries. If that dominates your landscape instead of yourself and your agenda, your worry will be evicted. Now, let me clarify something. This doesn't mean that God's going to always do things that we would prefer he do or tell us to do things that are easy for us. No. Abraham did not want to sacrifice Isaac. Ruth did not want her husband to die. Jesus did not want to go to the cross much. But we look, we think, and we humble ourselves because we know God is in charge. Now let me go on. That's the first. The second uh, key to evicting worry is we recover the role of suffering in our lives. We recover and we accept the role of suffering in the life of a believer. And we get it. Uh, Look at the last sentence, the very last sentence here. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word trouble can be translated evil. Each day has enough evil of its own. Jesus knew these first century listeners, his first century followers, would battle starvation, hate. That as they stand for him, they would lose friends, they would lose family, they would lose livelihood, and many of them would be put to death. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that trouble and evil would follow them daily. So what Jesus is saying here is to be free from worry and free from trouble is not the same thing. Not the same. One of the main reasons we worry, we fret, uh, we get uh, uptight and fearful is because we have a deficient view of the positive role of pain in the life of, of the believer. And so Jesus brings this up. And Jesus says, don't be surprised by trouble. Don't be surprised by evil. The lives of these disciples were full of trouble. Uh, But this is tough for us. This is why I said last week we have a flat tire and we're 75% of the way to atheism. You know, God, I didn't sign up for this. I'll follow you if it's easy. Now, we need to think about this a little. This is hard for us in our affluent, comfortable culture. So let's go to another passage. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your worry, your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. 
Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. In the first two verses, verses 6 and 7, Peter is talking about worry and anxiety, how we can evict it. Then, in the last two verses, he immediately goes to the subject of Satan and suffering. So, uh, freedom from worry and freedom from suffering are, are not the same thing. But I want you to see in these, I'll put it back up. I, I, I want you to see in these last two verses, beginning in verse 8, Peter talks about Satan, and he says, man, Satan's like a devil, and he prowls around, and he's looking for people to devour. And then in the very next verse, he talks about suffering. And, and the point is, one of the main ways Satan will seek to devour you is by causing you to suffer. Things not go well. You hit a wall. And in those moments, Satan's going to try to destroy you. But the very way Satan is trying to destroy you is the very way Jesus is trying to grow you. And to prepare us, Jesus says at the end of this passage on worry in the beautiful Sermon on the Mount, uh, to prepare us, Jesus says, hey, there's evil, there's trouble ahead. Every day has enough of it. I love these words of um, John Piper in a book of his I just read um, that I highly recommend. He writes, in other words, suffering is the way Satan is trying to devour the saints. But Peter says in 1 Peter 3.17, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If that should be God's will, in other words, whether we suffer, whether the jaws of the lion are allowed to clamp down on our leg or our throat is ultimately decided by God. If the Lord wills, we will suffer or not. If the Lord wills, Satan will be given this permission or not. This suffering, these jaws of the prowling lion are opened and closed only according to God's will. God holds the final sway, not Satan. So if we really believe that God is in control, God is sovereign in the providence of God, then we believe God is sovereign in our suffering. And we can rest in him. And we can take it. I do not want you to miss that Jesus begins the central passage on worry in the Bible by talking about the providence of God, and he concludes it by talking about suffering. As Piper goes on to say in his book, wimpy theology makes for wimpy Christians. And wimpy Christians will not survive the days ahead. Wimpy theology. Jesus here is taking us under the surface. The providence of God, the providence of God in suffering. Amazing. Now let's go on. The third way. 
the third key to evicting worry is recommit to seeking Jesus first. Jesus says this famously in verse 33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when Jesus says that, Jesus is saying, seek me first, because Jesus is at the center of God's kingdom, and Jesus is the source of all righteousness. Jesus is saying, seek me. But I don't want you to misunderstand. Seeking here doesn't mean that you dig deep and you somehow pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You find this spiritual hero within because that spiritual hero isn't there. And what it means, we begin to see God when we recognize our brokenness and our unworthiness and our self-centeredness and our need to be in control and our losing battle with worry. And we look away from ourselves and we look to Jesus. His sovereignty, his authority, his presence in our lives via the Holy Spirit. And we bask in the gospel, the, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the eternal life, uh, the acceptance, adoption, and grace that is ours because he went to the cross and bore our sins. And so we seek Jesus like a man seeks the woman he loves. But seeking Jesus... It's not just believing the gospel. It's also uh, appropriating the, the, uh, the gospel demands. Uh, so seeking Jesus means we give ourselves to pray. And if we're not very good at it, we, we read about it, we talk to others about it, and we develop a life of prayer and praise. Uh, seeking Jesus means uh, we appropriate the, the gospel by giving ourselves to reading the Bible. Memorizing verses, applying verses in, in tough places in, in our, our lives. Seeking Jesus means we find a healthy small group where people can hold us accountable, where people are open. And it means we make room for the people of God and the word of God in our lives. We make that a dominant priority in our lives. So seeking Jesus is believing what the gospel declares... And it's obeying what the gospel demands. Like what Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount. Relative to anger and adultery. Giving. Prayer and here worry. But at the center, seeking Jesus is all about thinking over and over about Jesus. Let me show you this from a passage I was reading this week. Just half a verse, Psalm 43. The psalmist says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. Now when he talks about God at the end of this pursuit, as his joy and his delight, what he's talking about is the fruit of seeking God. The fruit of seeking God is God becomes your joy, God becomes your uh, delight. But if you're like me, you read this and you say, well, you know, I, I can't really say God is my joy and my delight. I mean, I'm busy. 
But can you? Well, let me help you with this. Ask yourself, this opened up for me when I asked myself the question, how are other people a joy and a delight to me? And the answer is by what they say and do. What they say and do. And the same is true with God. And so when we think about what God says, that, that, that God will never forsake us, that God loves us, that God knows every hair on our head, that God holds us in the palm of his hand, that Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. When we think about what God has said, and we think about what God has done, so we look around at the wonder of creation, uh, the birds and the flowers, the mountains and the sunsets, and on and on. And we look back over our lives, and we think about those moments when God has shown up. We think about what God has done for us in in Jesus Christ. When we think about that, God becomes our joy and our delight. Other people are a joy and a delight in your life because of what they say and what they do, and the same is true with God. Seeking him, then, is thinking about what he has said about you, thinking about what he has said about who he is, thinking about what he has done. Now let me end this. You and I will never, ever overcome worry. We will always battle. We will always be worry challenged. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it isn't about three or four steps we take. Instead, the biblical picture here is we become like a child running to his mommy, his daddy. We need a person. We want a person. Jesus is that person. Jesus is the key to overcoming worry. Seek me. He died for you so that by believing in him and continually coming to him each and every day of your life, you might find abundant life. Seek me. Worry is refusing to doubt yourself. Worry is refusing to recognize you are not competent. You can say to me, Rob, I can't believe in Jesus. And I want to say to you in love, and man, I love you. No, you are refusing to believe in Jesus, and you are placing blind faith, exercising blind faith, and placing it in yourself. You are not competent. Jesus says, seek me. And this desire to be competent is what Jesus calls little faith here. Faith is seeing Jesus as competent. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. And Jesus is inviting you into a love relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at what you have done for us in your son. We are amazed at the grace you have given us in Jesus. And we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would 
Open our ears that we would see and we would hear your Son. And we thank you and we exalt you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.